Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Senator Paul Simon alive through wide-ranging civil conversations. Today, we're really, really delighted to be joined by Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth. Uh, Senator Duckworth is a friend of the Institute. She's been in Carbondale uh, many times. And uh, has an amazing story. I mean, she grew up in Southeast Asia. She went to high school and college in Hawaii, moved to DC to go to graduate school, and then kind of in a fateful moment, uh, moved to DeKalb to go to graduate school at Northern Illinois University and became uh, very much enamored with Illinois and has been here ever since. She's had an amazing military career, retired as a lieutenant colonel, served for 23 years, was a, a, a veteran of Iraq, a helicopter pilot, highly decorated. Um, she has uh, had a lot of public service. She was a director of the Illinois Department of Public or Veterans Affairs and the Assistant Secretary of Veterans Affairs in DC. She was a member of Congress for two terms from the 8th Congressional District and in 2016 was elected uh, United States Senator from Illinois. Uh, she's written a terrific memoir called Every Day is a Gift and joins us uh, today. So Senator, great, so great to see you again. It's good to be here, John. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, Senator, we'll talk. About, we'll have another occasion to talk about your memoir because it's a terrific book. But if there's one kind of image I wanted to kind of start with, and uh, um, and I guess I had not understood just sort of the complexity of your background growing up in you know Southeast Asia, a number of countries there, Hawaii. But one image that kind of stayed with me: you're 16 or 17, you're in high school, you know, you're going to high school, you're on the track team. Um, you're busy as can be. And then at the end of the day, you would hustle down to Waikiki Beach, where you would work for three or four hours handing out uh, flyers for, for, for cruises. You'd, you're selling uh, roses. You're even doing a little hustling of volleyball games. <laughs> Tell us about that time. It seems like such an amazing, and, and I should also add, there were times, I mean, you were kind of the primary breadwinner. So you said there were times during that period where you went to bed hungry and drank water as you went to bed to kind of quell the hunger. So tell us a little bit about that, that period in your life. Yeah, my, my father, when I was about 14, uh, lost his job. Um, and uh, uh, he was in his mid fifties and he just couldn't find another one. He, he kept applying and, and people kept telling him he was overqualified. We was just code for you're too old. We don't want to hire someone of your age. It was a lot of ageism. Um, and, and so he was unemployed for almost five years and kept trying. And, and my dad being very um, hard-headed, refused to look for lower level jobs because he thought he should be where he was before. And our family descended into poverty. And so in Hawaii, uh, we, we moved there from Asia where my dad had been working as an expatriate um, uh, for multinational corporations and the like, because that's all the money in the world we had was enough to pay for some one-way plane tickets and the closest part of the U.S. we could get to was Hawaii. We, we didn't go there because it was paradise. We went there because it was the closest U.S. soil we could get to from Thailand with the remaining few hundred bucks we had left. And so we landed there and um, we had no money. Uh, he couldn't find a job uh, and we were on food stamps and I was the only one who could find a job and thank goodness for minimum wage laws because I got a job after school and, and tried to pick up money wherever I could. And we were always behind on the rent um, because only money we had coming in was what I could what I could make. And my dad eventually got a job 
um, as a doorman at a department store where he worked for tips only. And my mom took in sewing. And so we were, you know, we were scraping by trying to working as hard as we could. And I will tell you, I've never worked as hard uh, as any time in my life other as, as much as I did when we were that dirt poor. It taught me the value of a penny. Don't ever get between me and a penny on the ground. I will roll over you <laughs> to pick it up. I am not embarrassed or ashamed. I will pick it up. <laughs> Well, Senator, the one thing that really was powerful, too, is, I mean, and we all have people who sort of help us out in our lives. And and you describe a Mr. Nakamura, I think I pronounced it correctly, who was this uh, high school teacher. He was, a, I think, a, a yearbook, uh, you know, coordinator, also a graphic arts teacher. And initially you thought he was a little bit clueless because he kept, you know, a number of you guys after class. I mean, he would sort of mess up the yearbook design and he'd say, okay, you have to stay late. So tell us about what you learned from him and really what his story and what his motive was. Yeah. Well, I mean, the story was, you know, we, in, in, in all of our, you know, knowledge of being a bunch of 15 and 16 year olds, we thought we were the bright ones and he was this poor, hapless, befuddled, uh, a high school yearbook uh, a coordinator, you know, advisor. And we would do, we would have the time and we would do our yearbook work, um, you know, the, the period that we did our yearbook work with him. And then he would always like two or three times a week, at least he'd say, guys, I need you to stay after um, because, you know, we messed up the layout or, oh, I, 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 you know, I gave you the wrong instructions. We got to redo that. Come on back after your sports practice, and everything, come back to school and and, and let's do some more work on it. And so we would like, oh, and then we, we adored him because he was just so funny and so smart. And we were like, God, he is so disorganized. Why can he never get his instructions right? Why do we always have to be after school? And then at the end of, we, we fixed whatever problem was and he'd go, he'd pull out of his pocket, you know, 10 bucks out of his wallet for all of us. And we're like, okay, here guys, just, just get yourself some dinner on your way home. And we had a Taco Bell on the backside of the school that back then two tacos for 99 cents. So all five of us would get two tacos each, you know, uh, 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 three or four tacos. So all of us who stayed would get some, would get to eat and, and I would actually get a couple extras to take home. Um, and it wasn't until later I realized he wasn't messing anything up. He was just feeding us because we were all the food stamp kids and we were all the kids who were not going to get dinner that night, um, especially towards the end of the month. And so this public school teacher it, I was doing what public school teachers do do today, which is reach into their pockets uh, to take care of their kids. And, you know, had I been hungrier, any hungrier in high school, I probably would have dropped out. I would have dropped out because I, I, I made more money and helped my, my family more by having a minimum wage job. And I would have gone and gone two or three minimum wage jobs. And, and I would never have graduated high school, which would meant I would never qualify to serve in the army and I would never be a US Senator today. Um, so thank God for public school teachers. Right. And, and I'll stop here. But the one other, there, I mean, there's so many fun facts in your book, one of them, which is as a, a young girl, really, in Indonesia, you're one of the first baseball umpires. Uh, I'd love to see uh, pictures of that. And also, I learned that you were so good at fixing flat tires that your friends kind of called you Ms. Triple A, um, because you are just sort of a one person uh, kind of repair crew. And then finally, you, you, you learned to become the world's best packer. I know you moved a lot and that wasn't always fun, but you said that you can, given a, a little time, you can put everything you need in like one small suitcase. Yeah, so with, with, the, trip, with the, the, the umpiring and the AAA, that was my dad. My dad, you know, he felt that you have to take personal responsibility. And if you're gonna drive a car, you better know how to fix the basic things. And so he taught me to drive a stick shift when I was 12, um, uh, a little Toyota pickup truck. Um, he taught me to change tires, do my change my own oil. 
Um, and I mean, why was I going to pay somebody? You know, I, I, I was poor, you know, and even in college, you know, I was like, why would I pay someone to change my oil when I can do it myself and save myself some money? Um, and so I learned to do all of that because my dad insisted that I learn. Um, and as the empire, um, my, when we were living in Indonesia, my dad was the commissioner for the little, uh, the baseball league, the little league there. And um, he needed more umpires and he didn't have enough people. So he got me trained. My dad was a, a licensed umpire. He did triple A ball. Uh, later on in life and so he got me certified I did just I didn't do like the high school I did like the t-ballers and the you know the the, the six seven eight uh eight-year-olds and so it was a lot of fun but yeah other girls were babysitting and I was out there umpiring um <laughs> <laughs> for money um you know and, and that's just the way you know just my dad saying hey we, we all got to pull you gotta you know carry the load a little bit Right. Well, Senator, let's let's kind of move to Illinois. And, and one of the ironies I, I learned is that, you know, you grew up in Southeast Asia, but it was the Southeast Asian Studies program at Northern Illinois and DeKalb that effectively drew you to Illinois. And and you, you just say that, you know, once you arrived, you just felt like you were home. It just connected to you in a way that no other place had. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so I was studying for my master's at George Washington University, thinking I would take the foreign service exam because I wanted to go work in embassies and live overseas. And you know, my, my, I come from a family of service. My dad's family has been a military service going back 200 years, 200 plus years, actually. Um, uh, and, and, but I always knew I was going to serve in the foreign service in the diplomatic corps. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and I was getting ready to enter into PhD programs. I was working for the curator for Asian history at the Smithsonian on a, on a fellowship. And he said, well, if you want to you study Southeast Asia, you have to move to DeKalb, Illinois. And I said, I need to go where? <laughs> what are you talking about? I've never heard of DeKalb, Illinois. Because I was applying to Johns Hopkins, to Cornell, to UC Berkeley, you know, and he said, well, if you truly want to go to an outstanding Southeast Asian studies program, then you need to go to NIU. It's one of the top three in the nation. Um, and he gave me time off from work and made me, you know, drive out to Illinois. And I'm like, oh God, this guy is crazy. Fine, I'll go. And by the way, I, I only applied because there was no fee for, for my application fee. Um, so I put in an application. I drove out um, uh, to take a look. And I just, I got into Illinois and I was driving through rows and rows of cornfields. And I just, there was just a peace and a well-being that I felt immediately um, uh, once I got there and I met everyone. And I'd been out to all of these other schools to talk to folks, but nowhere, nowhere was as welcoming um, as DeKalb was. And, and I knew I was home and, and I have never left. You know, I've been, been it's, it's been my home. It's been my heart ever since. Well, Senator, I know you uh, spent a lot of time in the state and you were here for an extensive uh trip in, in August, seeing large parts of the state. And I'm wondering if we could kind of focus on where Illinois is now, particularly, you know, we're, we're hopefully near the kind of the stretch run of COVID. Of course, we don't really know that. But how do you think the, st the state has weathered COVID in terms of both the economy and um, public health? And then I guess, thirdly, kind of the social cohesion about, you know, a sense of community and, and getting through this together. Well, I think the governor made some tough decisions and that, that were the right ones, which is some of the mandates, um, uh, both the mask mandates, um, and now he's implementing the vaccine mandates. Uh, um, I think those are really critically important. I think Illinois has weathered COVID better than the states surrounding us. If you look at the rates of the illnesses and the rates of vaccinations and, and, and rates of death, we are doing much better than all the states that surround us. 
um, because our governor took some, some pretty uh, uh, decisive actions very early on, we are nowhere near where we need to be. And Del the Delta variant has really reared its head. And this is where the division within our state is showing up, the political division, because in Southern Illinois in particular, you're seeing COVID be uh, uh, much more widespread. Um, and in fact, over the last couple of weeks, uh, about two weeks ago, I was having a conversation with the Southern Illinois Hospital Network and they don't have any ICU beds left. And in fact, we've had to open up ICU beds in the VA hospitals, like at Marion VA, in order for compassionate use of civilians to go in. I'm scheduled today for more calls with healthcare um, providers in Southern Illinois. Um, part of this is people going into, you know, even when we were in lockdown in Illinois, people were going across the river into Missouri, um, uh, where there were no mass mandates under that, and people were actually catching and bringing it back into Illinois. Um, and so this is where we've got to get beyond politics. This is just about protecting ourselves and, and each other and our families. I, I remember when I went to Iraq and people were dying all around me and somebody offered me body armor and said, here's some body armor will protect you from getting killed. I didn't say, you know, I have the right not to wear body armor. I was like, oh, great. Thank you. And I put it on, you know? So, so if I was willing to wear body armor in a combat zone because it saved my life, why wouldn't I wear a mask? And, and so we just got to like get Take the politics out of it. And, and let's talk about taking care of one another. I mean, my kids are three and six. They can't be vaccinated yet. I wear my mask to protect you. You wear your mask to protect me and to protect my kids and other people's kids who can't and, and other people who can't be vaccinated. So that's part of what we're seeing. Um, we're doing better, uh, um, but we have a long way to go just like we do in the rest of the nation. We just have to get beyond the politics of all this. And, and follow the science and, and take care of one another. And of course, I have a, Carbondale has a special place in my heart because my husband commanded the National Guard unit there in Carbondale for about three years. So we used to be down there all the time and then have lots of great friends in Carbondale. Great. Well, Senator, let's talk a little bit about some national issues. And uh, if you read the Southern and almost any newspaper in Illinois, um, looking at Washington, I mean, there's this sense of, of kind of um, maybe disbelief, but there's just, this is a complicated time. You know, there's a, you know, Congress just passed a short-term spending bill to keep the government funded. You have a debt ceiling coming up in a couple of weeks that needs to be lifted. You have a major infrastructure bill that has been linked to a major $3.5 trillion, you know, social services agenda, effectively the Biden agenda. And from a distance, it looks pretty chaotic. I know Congress oftentimes does look chaotic, but there's commentary about, okay, here we go again. The Democrats are, are you know, convening a circular firing squad. And, and, and tell me how it looks from your perspective. Is this, are you encouraged? Do you, are you concerned? How do you see this unfolding? Well, all of the above. I'm curious and concerned. I'm, I'm frustrated. Yeah, I, I feel like we Democrats, Here's the thing about the Democrats is we're such a large umbrella that we accept so many people under the umbrella of Democrats and we have people on very opposite ends of the political spectrum under this term Democrat. So you have, you know, the people who are very far right and, you know, for a Democrat uh, and, 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 you know, you're very conservative Democrats, you have very liberal Democrats. Um, I sort of feel like it's where Illinois sits, right? We're the middle of the country, we're the heartland and you got like, you know, the people on either coasts. Uh, and here we are in the middle and we're trying to, you know, uh, I, I feel like we Midwesterners are the ones who are sort of the level headed people in the room uh, when uh, it's funny because we senators when we sit and we talk with each other, you know, um, it's a little bit like high school uh, uh, at, at the caucus lunches, you know, and I end up sitting with like Amy Klobuchar and Tammy Baldwin and, and, and 
uh, you know, uh, Gary Peters, like all the other Midwesterners. And we're always like, hey, but you know, here, this is what the people in, this is what we need in Illinois right now. And this is what the middle of the country needs. Don't forget about, you know, where middle America is. And so we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We have to pay our bills. I mean, the, the debt ceiling, the best way to describe it is that we spent a bunch of money on our credit cards, um, not just during Republican and Democratic, but both, both Republicans and Democrats spent a lot of money on our credit cards and now the bill is due and we have to pay it. That's just the bottom line. Uh, the, the infrastructure plan needs to be passed because we are well beyond where we should be in terms of our nation's infrastructure. In fact, the American Association of Civil Engineers rates our nation's infrastructure as a D minus average. We have over 2,500 bridges in Illinois, for example, that are rated as being structurally deficient, but we're still using them. Um, and so, and we have lead in our drinking water supply. How do we compete with the likes of South Korea and Germany and China if we don't have world-class infrastructure? So we need to do that. We can't get grain down the Mississippi River fast enough to the southeastern parts of the United States that that states like South Carolina and Georgia are actually buying grain from Brazil because it's faster to get grain shipped from Brazil to the southeastern part of the US and to buy it from Illinois because we the Mississippi, the locks and dams of the Mississippi are in such disrepair. So we have to make we have to make those investments. That's going to happen. The extent of some of the social uh, services agenda, we're gonna have a lot of discussion on that. I, I for example, want to get everybody that's on the waiting list for home health care off the waiting list. There are many, many, many uh, millions of Americans who need care to live and they can't get the care that they need. Um, so there's a lot of discussions. We'll get there. We'll get there. Democrats, you know, as Mark Twain said, I, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And that's just the way we are. But we, we will get there. Okay. Senator, I came across an article this weekend by Robert Kagan, who's a, a conservative Republican. He worked for Jack Kemp and, uh, and uh, Ronald Reagan. And he wrote an essay in the Post, which you may have seen. It came out about a week ago. And I want to read a couple sentences because it, it, it leads to kind of a, a, a kind of a big picture discussion. But Kagan writes, the United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War with a reasonable chance over the next three, three to four years of incidents of mass violence, a breakdown of federal authority, and the division of the country into warring red and blue enclaves. The warning signs may be obscured by the distractions of politics, the pandemic, the economy and global crisis, and by wishful thinking and denials. But these, are, these signs should be there for all to see. First, Donald Trump will be the Republican candidate for president in 2024. The hope and expectation that he would fade in visibility and influence has been delusional. He enjoys a mammoth lead in the polls. He's building a massive campaign war chest. And at the moment, the Democratic ticket looks vulnerable. Barring health problems, he is running. Second, Trump and his Republican allies are actively preparing to ensure his victory by whatever means necessary. Trump's charges of fraud in 2020 are now primarily aimed at establishing the predicate to challenge future election results that don't go his way. The stage is thus being set for chaos. I mean, these are chilling words from a pretty sober-minded person. Tell me, react to that. Is this, is this hyperbolic or does this reflect uh, some of the concerns that you have? I think it reflects quite a few of the concerns that I have. Um, it's why we need to take some pretty decisive actions, uh, not the least of which passing a voting rights bill to make sure that we do protect people's rights to vote. Um, 
I will say one thing I don't quite agree with him on is that yes, there are divisions within our country, but I will tell you that portions of our country that were, that were much redder are becoming much more purple with people sort of splitting the ticket and seeing both sides. And we see this in Illinois, as you, as you see the suburbs become more and more purple. I represented in, in, uh, in Illinois, um, the 80% of my old congressional district was Henry Hyde's old district. Um, but, but you're seeing those portions become a little bit more purple. You're seeing areas, uh, uh, you know, and I think you're seeing people who see themselves as moderates who don't identify as democratic or Republican. I think you're seeing them or even independent Republicans uh, very much appalled by Donald Trump and what he's trying to do. And I think that's showing up in how they're voting as well. And you see that, that you saw that in the results of the last presidential election and you're seeing it in uh, members of Congress of the house where some districts have turned much more purple. And I don't think that's because people suddenly became democratic. I think people just are um, tired of the partisanship. And that's what we need to appeal to is to talk to people and say, this is about America and our values and we stand up for. And certainly um, uh, denying people access to the polls is completely un-American. But we have, we have to be very careful uh, because uh, uh, under Donald Trump, um, and he's continuing this massive effort to challenge election results all across the country and to try to get these laws changed to be set. essentially, you know, he, he didn't like the fact that he didn't get some of these votes. So he's going to change who his voters are by not allowing a lot of voters access. And we have to stop that. Well, and Kagan argues in this article that the single most important thing really on the congressional agenda this year is passing that voting uh, legislation that I think Senators Klobuchar and Manchin are the lead sponsors of. And he says, I mean, he says, without being hyperbolic, this is our democracy hinges upon getting these protections in place so states cannot pass laws that effectively, you know, allow a small group to overturn the, the, the votes of millions of people. Yes, well, absolutely. And, and to prevent people from even being, even being able to go to the polls to vote. Um, and, and some of these laws are very insidious um, because they, they target very specific populations and they even go by county to county. Um, um, to deny, um, you know, specific demographics of people from vote um, from voting, and it's largely minority communities and and poorer communities who tend to vote more Democratic are, are the targets for being disenfranchised. Well, Senator, let's let's shift to foreign policy, and I know you were part of a, a really important hearing a week or two ago on the in the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, reviewing the. Uh, the lessons learned from 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 Afghanistan. You had the military leadership there, and I guess a couple of things. You know, one, what did you learn from the from the hearing? Two, tell us a little bit about the legislation that you're developing to have an independent study of the war, the 20 year war, and also third. I know you've spoken about this very profoundly about the the responsibilities that Americans have to Afghans who who put their lives on the line for us? I mean, in terms of resettling them in Illinois and elsewhere? Well, I think, you know, I, we, we learned that um, uh, uh, from the military leaders that the Doha Accords were absolutely critical to um, uh, the withdrawing all of the US troops. And even though we had postponed the dates, had we not withdrawn the troops the way we did, the, um, the Taliban would have seen that as a violation of the Doha Accords and begun and had broken their agreement, which was to not attack US troops. And they were starting to see them ramp up their campaign. Now there's a lot of questions as to why, you know, we, we, we seem to get from the military leaders that their recommendation was to keep 2,500 uh, troops there 
with the understanding that by keeping troops there, we would actually have to flex up to over 5,000 in the future. And um, I think most Americans did not realize that. I think most Americans thought, well, we just kept the 2,500, everything would be fine. But in fact, what they said was, their recommendation to the president was keep 2,500 troops on the ground, but that, that would, in doing so, we would actually have to flex up and, and send upwards of 5,000 and, and, and flex, basically have another surge of US troops in Afghanistan. Um, and the president chose not, not that's, you know, that was not a course of action that he wanted to do. Um, and that also that the State Department, which is chief of mission, did not call for the evacuation of civilians until much later than what the military had been recommending. Um, that led to a lot of the issues that we had there. Um, and so, you know, we, we need, we could have done better. Um, the, no other nation, uh, no other military in the world could have done the logistics lift that we did, but it should never have gotten to that, which is why I want to have this independent investigation. It's modeled somewhat on the 9-11 commission. I want it to be nonpartisan, not even bipartisan, nonpartisan. I don't want any Democrats. I don't want any Republicans on it. I don't want anybody on this commission that was in a decision-making role at any point in time in the last 20 years when it comes to Afghanistan. So no former Secretary of Defense, no former presidents, no former generals. It needs to be completely apolitical, independent, so that we can truly get a look at what happened in Afghanistan. What were the mistakes that we made in the last 20 years so we never, ever do this again? Because we're going to be faced with this type of situation in the future. If you look at what drought and climate change has done to the, the nation's climate, it's resulting in prolonged droughts in portions of Africa, resulting in mi migration of populations, which is why Boko Haram is gaining in power, because you have these populations that are moving into areas that they've ne never been into before, and you're seeing conflict, and they're taking advantage of those conflicts. We're going to face a, an Afghanistan-type situation in the future and we we need to learn the lesson so that we never do that again and i want it to be completely non-political i've been part of a bipartisan commission before the benghazi committee and and that i did not think served the the american people the way it should have um had it been non-partisan so you have some professors who are experts in this field i might be coming to you for some of their names or some <laughs> <of the> commission <laughs> you have, have some great ones at siu so <laughs> Well, Senator, I know one, um, you know, one thing, one region of the world that you're really interested in is the kind of Asian Pacific. And you took a group of, of lawmakers there, I think in June, uh, you were in South Korea. You had quite a dramatic visit to uh, Taiwan that maybe you could tell us about. Um, and I think you were hoping to go back um, sometime this fall on kind of a more economic focused uh, mission. Um, so tell us broadly why that region is important to the people of the United States, the people of Illinois, and what you're seeing, and particularly also, you know, the, the, the rise of China and how that should be responded to. Well, several things. One, agriculturally, um, Asia is a great trading partner and a great market for Illinois in particular and, and our ag sector. We are, you know, among the, high, the largest in soybean and pork products. Uh, producers of those two uh, in, in the United States. And Asia is, you know, some of the largest consumers of those products. And, and American grown, American agriculture is the gold standard. I mean, when you go to Asia and, and people want to buy American produce, um, you know, baby formula made from American dairy, because they know that we have the highest standards and there's not going to be contaminants in the food and that, and that they can trust American agriculture. And so we should take advantage of that. 
and grow those relationships and grow that, that trading partner. We also in Illinois have significant manufacturing capacity. Um, and, and really, you know, when you look at what's happened during COVID, it became very clear that our logistics supply chain is very vulnerable. And we, um, the president has really been emphasizing the need to regrow American manufacturing and American manufacturing capacity. Uh, uh, I was in South Korea uh, two weeks after President Moon and, and President Biden had their bilateral summit where South Korea said, hey, we are committing to making $38 billion in manufacturing investments in the United States. And I was the first to say, Illinois. <laughs> Bring it here to Illinois, you know, come to us. We've got everything you need, including multiple daily flights to, to, to Seoul. So um, come to us. We are a logical place for these investments and for, for this growth uh, in manufacturing because we led the nation in manufacturing. Uh, we have the largest, one of the largest concentrations of tool and die manufacturing in the country is in Illinois. Um, you know, we, we have Rivian that's doing electric cars there in Bloomington Normal. Hopefully we get a, you know, we get some additional investments there. Uh, we grew 100,000 new jobs on wind power alone. So I do think we're uniquely positioned um, with the workforce. We have more colleges in Illinois than anywhere else in the country other than Boston. You know, we, 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 we've, we are competitive. And so um, I wanted to really push for that commercial partnership with Asia and Illinois um, uh, in particular, but also to really encourage our allies to invest back in the United States. And it's a push the president is making. And it's certainly something that I want to lead on. I don't know if I'm gonna, I, I was hoping to go on this Codell um, uh, uh, here uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks, but because of the, the debt uh, limit and everything that's going, I might postpone it until the spring, but I'm gonna be out there championing Illinois as a great place to make investments uh, for the near future. Well, tell us about your trip to Taiwan. That uh, that was pretty, uh, a little bit like a, a novel or a spy mystery or something. <laughs> well, that, it came about as a result of um, the PRC had blockaded Taiwan from the COVID vaccine. So Taiwan wanted, they actually had the resources to buy COVID vaccines, but um, the, the, the PRC had basically told other nations that were vaccine producers not to sell to Taiwan. And then they told Taiwan that they could only, the only vaccines that they could buy was the, the Chinese Sinovac. Um, and, and they basically bullied other nations from selling their version of the vaccine to Taiwan. It's by saying, if you sell to Taiwan, then you cannot do business with us and we're gonna, we're gonna blackball you. So Taiwan was essentially being blockaded by the PRC from access to the vaccine. And I thought that's, you know, that fundamentally is wrong. Um, not the least of which, Taiwan is a friend of the United States. And if we say that we're going to stand with Taiwan and prevent them from being physically invaded by the PRC militarily, um, then we need to stand by them when they're in trouble, when it's a humanitarian crisis. And by the way, when COVID first hit the US and we didn't have enough PPE, Taiwan sent us millions and millions of masks and, and, and PP, you know, pieces of PPE and, and respirators and things to help America. So they stood by us at the beginning it was time to stand by them. I spoke, Senator Sullivan and Senator Coons and I spoke with administration extensively and were able to free up some vaccines for Taiwan. And we flew to Taiwan to, um, to make that announcement because uh, the, the PRC had actually had a, a propaganda machine where they were telling the Taiwanese people that America was not Taiwan's friend. And in fact, 
we had so many vaccines that we were giving vaccines to our dogs and cats and before we would even send them to Taiwan. So, <laughs> so we showed up to counter the propaganda and say, here it is. Um, and the best way that we could get there because of all of the COVID restrictions was on a military transport flight. And so we flew in, we're on the ground for three hours, delivered, you know, the news of the vaccine and flew out. And it, you know, at the time when these people were just so grateful because we were the first people to basically break the blockade or the Japanese did as well. Um, uh, and, and, and help Taiwan fight COVID. Well, Senator, you've been a really big proponent of American vaccine diplomacy. Um, tell me, tell us how you think the United States is doing in terms of, 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 of being a world leader and, and, and trying to get supplies to parts of the world that just really do not have sufficient supplies of vaccine. I think we're doing very well, but I think we could do better. And I think the president has made that commitment that, that we will increase our the vaccines that we donate to the world. And that's the key. We're not selling it to the rest of the world. We are donating the vaccines. That's what you need to do. You know, we're the leader of the free world and we have a role uh, to play and it's a humanitarian mission. And so we certainly should be uh, uh, helping countries that are struggling right now um, during this global humanitarian crisis. And in contrast to some of our adversaries out there, we're not selling vaccines, we're actually donating our vaccines. And um, there are countries that certainly, I think, need more vaccines. Thailand is one, uh, the Philippines needs more. Um, there are many countries around the world that, that need more vaccines. And um, you know, I'm in constant talks with the administration to try to make sure we get more vaccines out there. The sooner we get the vaccines out there, the sooner normal commerce and business can continue and the work can go back and, and when we, we can start traveling again and, and buying and selling from one another, it's, it's good for the U.S. in the long run as well. Well, what, so much has been written and is, is being spoken about in terms of the rise of China and the threat it poses to really the South, that whole region, Southeast Asia, but, but really the world. I mean, what is your take on the, the rise of China and what the U.S. can and should be doing to respond to it? Well, first off, you know, with the PRC, we have to we have to trade with them. Uh, they're they're one of our biggest customers for American manufactured goods. So I'm not saying that we oppose the PRC, but I do think that we have to stand up to their attempts at hegemony. Right? They're trying to dominate, especially Southeast Asia, and and I mean they're they're actually building islands in international waters and claiming them to be Chinese territory. Um, and what I hear from nations as I've traveled from Vietnam to Thailand to, uh, you know, all, all over to Korea to Japan is that um, people want the U.S. to be present. Uh, they want us to be a counterweight to what the PRC is trying to do. We used to be the leader of the world. We sort of looked away all throughout the 90s and the early 2000s because of our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we've sort of let this portion of the world sort of uh, put it on the back burner. We need to reassert our leadership. That doesn't mean that we come in and tell people you either are our friends or our enemy. No, we just have to be a presence. One of the best things that we're doing is actually making sure that there's freedom of navigation on the seas. Whereas the PRC is trying to stop people from having freedom of navigation, we are enforcing freedom of navigation. We're not telling people you have to choose sides. All we want people to do is respect international law. Um, and that is very much welcomed. Uh, U.S. presence is very much welcome. And it doesn't have to just be militarily, which is why I'm really, you know, from my seat on commerce, I think it's important for America to be present. We need to be part of these trade agreements. We need to be part of, of, of investments, um, both in Asia, but also with Asia in the United States, so that we are some, an alternative presence to the PRC and what they're trying to do 
um, uh, in order to dominate that part of the world. Okay. Senator, we have a number of questions that have been emailed in, and let me read you a couple of them. The first one comes from uh, William in Carbondale saying, how can I try to help Afghan nationals who work for U.S.-affiliated ent entities are in danger and are trying to leave Af Afghanistan and come to the U.S.? So um, I actually was even on a call today with a, a private group of uh, former military folks who are trying to fly out uh, some Afghans right now. Um, I think the best thing you can do from the United States is to help the refugee resettlement agencies. Uh, there are quite a few of them, uh, Catholic Charities, Heartland Alliance, there's quite a few of them. You can look it up. You can go to the Illinois, uh, the state of Illinois uh, uh, webpage. Um, there's a listing of them. Contact those folks and see. They are going to need everything from uh, affordable housing. These are families that are showing up with no place to stay to furniture, to things like cribs for the babies and, and jobs. And, and uh, if you are uh, in the legal field, you know, we need pro bono legal services, whether you're a lawyer or a paralegal, you don't have to be an immigration specialist, but we need people to help fill out paperwork. Uh, if you're an, a Pashtun Adari speaker, then we absolutely need your help. But average Americans can certainly help by reaching out to these refugee agencies and saying, Hey, what do you need? Uh, do you need someone to drive somebody to, to a doctor's appointment? Do you need, you know, we can all help in some way. And um, just as these folks helped American forces and kept us alive when we were in Afghanistan, we need to welcome them. You know, they gave up a lot for Americans even before they had a shot at becoming American citizens. And we need to stand by them the way they stood by our troops. Great. Judy from Carbondale asks, what is the number one thing we as ordinary citizens can do to support legislative efforts to protect voting rights and other important issues? Um, I think what you need to do is vote in your lo local elections for those folks who will um, stand up for, for voting rights and uh, don't underestimate the value of your voice to your members of Congress that uh, where you want them to vote on this issue. Um, I, even, even, even those who are supportive of voting rights legislations like myself, I want you to email me. I want you to fax. Yes, I still have fax. In fact, <laughs> uh, we still actually have a fax machine. You can send me a letter. You can email me. You can tweet at me. You can fax me. You can call. Um, because I, every single member of Congress actually keeps a tally of how many calls and contacts we have on each side of every issue. So when you contact me and say, I want you to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, or I want you to enshrine and safeguard people's rights to vote, I count that. And then I can go on the floor of the Senate and say, I got 2 million calls from constituents telling me I must stand up for people's rights to vote. Similarly, somebody who is against the voting rights, you, know, you need to make sure that they know that, that you don't appreciate that, especially if they are your member of Congress. Lorraine from Carbondale writes, I'm looking for reasons of hope in our current political, social, financial, and environmental struggles around the world. What do you see as positive in the midst of so many problems and difficulties we now face? Well, remember that we passed an American Rescue Plan, and that significantly helped families and businesses and municipalities. Your municipalities have just recently received the money that Democrats passed with their American Rescue Plan. So if you see public works happening in Carbondale, it's because we got that money out the door to them. Um, we're going to get uh, uh, infrastructure bill out. Uh, we passed it in a bipartisan way, $1.75 trillion. It passed out of the Senate. 
uh, in a significant way. It wasn't even like close 51, you know, 49. It passed uh, uh, with significant, I think, almost 20 Republican votes. So know that there's bipartisanship, that we are working together, that we're going to get there. We may not get a three point seven five or three point five trillion dollar deal out, but we may be a two trillion dollar deal. That's going to make things better and that we are actively working and we can go back and work on more um, and that we can help each other, that we are getting more people vaccinated. Um, and, and so just have hope that, you know, sometimes, you know, it's what I always told myself when I was in the army and I was on a 20 mile road march and it was mile one, you know, and I think, oh, my God, my rucksack is already heavy and my feet already hurt. It's just one step at a time, one step at a time. And before you know it, you've done the 20 miles. We're going to get there. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a lot of sausage making. That's democracy is hard. Democracy is messy. It's because we allow everyone to have a voice. Um, but that's what makes us so great. It makes us great. It makes us the leader of the free world because we do allow this process to happen. So bear with us. Make your voices heard so that your votes can be counted. Your voice can be counted. We're going to get there. Mindy from Carbondale says, um, I took part in our local rally and march for reproductive rights this weekend. What can our elected officials do to assure that women nationwide do not lose the right to abortion and control of our own bodies? Well, we're doing some of these things right now. I know at the federal level, the Justice Department under um, Attorney General Mary Garland is um, uh, uh, opposing the Texas laws uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, uh, but we can certainly at even the very local level make sure that you support women's access to reproductive health. And remember that this isn't just about abortion. Uh, these, these are, and, and really educate people and, and educate the people around you. Young people, for example, take a lot of birth control for granted that they would lose access to those forms of birth control should many of these laws actually be enacted. For example, personhood, I, this idea of personhood that a fertilized egg is a person and has every rights of a person means that, you know, for um, uh, 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 contraceptive um, uh, types of contraceptives like IUDs would be illegal. Um, my own fertility doctor told me that, you know, these personhood amendments, um, should they pass and people think, oh yeah, it's a fertilized egg, it's a person. Well, it means that he could have been convicted of manslaughter when he implanted three fertilized eggs in me knowing that they're not all going to take. Um, so it would actually affect people's access to growing a family, to having a pregnancy. Many forms of, of, I, of IVF would not be legal. Um, so what you can do as a, as a person in your community is make sure you understand the implications of these proposed laws. And, and again, make your voices heard and educate those around you. Young people don't realize that things like Plan B would, be, would become inaccessible, IUDs would become inaccessible. Um, and, and, and just stand up and say, you know what, you don't have, you know, I have the right to decisions over my own body. And that's a decision that I and my family should make, whether that is the, the, the abortion issue or as in my case, trying to grow a family. Nancy from Carbondale asks, how can you and your office assist the city of Carbondale with the issue of gun, of gun violence? So one of the things that I have been, I've got two things. One um, that I've been working on is um, I actually have the Police Training and Independent Review Act, which is a piece of legislation that provides funding for grant programs of police, uh, for, for police forces. But in order to access that grant funding to for training for the police officers, they must include cultural and sensitivity training as part of their training package. And they must agree to 
uh, independent third, third party review of any involved uh, police shootings or injury to, um, to civilians. Uh, because too often the local prosecuting attorney's office relies on that local police force for the evidence that they use uh, to go after the police officers that are that that maybe have mis um, you know uh, uh, not behaved in the correct way. So we need to have independent review of police involved shootings and deaths. Um, uh, and and so that's one thing that I'm working on. The other that I'm working on is making sure we fund all of the social service programs that are desperately needed in places like Carbondale. You know, when you call 911 in Carbondale because somebody that you know is having a mental health breakdown or is going through a substance abuse, an overdose, the person that comes to your door is most likely going to be a police officer with body armor and a, and a sidearm. But what you really need is somebody who is a, you know, a counselor who knows where there's a mental health bed or, or um, a drug addiction treatment program bed. Um, and so we need to fund those programs so that the person who comes to your door is appropriate for the problem that you have. The police officer can still come, but they may be at the curb and, and it's a substance abuse specialist. And then I was just in the Quad Cities and I, and I saw for the first time, I'm very pleased by it, um, uh, uh, mental health counselors going on ride-alongs with police officers. So when police officers are out doing their jobs, there's also a mental health counselor who can step in when that's appropriate. Um, and, and frankly, that's what we need. We need the police officers to be focused on fighting crime. And then we need to deal with all of the other uh, issues uh, with the appropriately trained individuals for it. And so I'm supporting funding those programs as well. Okay. Senator, we had uh, about a year ago, your colleague, Sherrod Brown, who was with us, and he was talking about his book, uh, Desk 88, which he talked about all the people who had, or several of the people who had sat at his desk and gave profiles of them. And I was just looking back and I saw that the desk that you sit at, um, you've had some pretty interesting people who preceded you. Barbara Mikulski, who is a legendary uh, lawmaker, uh, Paul Wellstone, Robert Kennedy, Barack Obama, Paul Simon. Tell us what you can learn from some of these people in terms of, of the lessons about public service and government. You might start out with the two Illinoisans, Senator Simon and Senator Obama, but uh, what, what, can, what can you learn and what can we learn from their, their public careers? Well, I think Senator Obama, because he spoke to our better angels, you know, coming together, we're not, red, we're not the red states or the blue states, we're the United States. Um, and he and he united the country and 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 talk about the overarching uh, values of this country and who we could be as a nation. The aspirational part of this, you know, uh, of this country. I remember all the celebrations, um, you know, with people on both sides of the aisle when they voted for him. So that's that is for me a real um, and and how he took the stage to lead America on on the global stage. Um, I thought that's something I can learn from. Paul Simon, I don't know if you noticed, but when Paul Simon signed my desk, he actually had to put, he put Illinois next to it. Like nobody would know who Paul Simon is, but that's so typical of Paul Simon that he would be so self-deprecating that he felt the need to write down because he didn't think that he was, you know, well-known enough that people would know it was the Paul Simon, but he's the only one that did that, which I thought was kind of funny, um, you know, that here's this lion of the Senate and yet he felt the need to like, you know, let us know. Um, and that is what I learned from Paul Simon is the fact that it's about showing up every day, being true to your values, not afraid to speak up because he was never afraid to speak up, but also uh, being methodical about pursuing those, 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 and those ends um, and getting them. He was also another one who, even though he could be pretty sharp in some of his criticisms, um, 
was a, was a uniter. He brought people together and he found, he found middle ground time and again. And, and that is uh, certainly something I would love to aspire to. And so, yes, I'm very lucky that I get to open the drawer, my desk drawer and see Reverend Mikulski, the first Senator, female Senator elected in her own right. And, and Paul Simon with a little Illinois next to his name to show me, you know, have some, be humble, be humble every day and do the people's work. You're, you're a servant of the, of the people. Well, let me ask you, what, what are some of your favorite places in Illinois? If you, I, I know you're busy when you visit and you have, you know, lots of appointments and meetings, but if you were to have just sort of a nice October weekend, is there a place or two in the state that you would like to uh, go with your, your family and just relax? Well, so there's, my kids are pretty young, so they always want to go to the, to, to a pumpkin patch, right? I love to ride bikes and so does my husband. So many of the rail to trails um, and just going out on the trails and riding our bikes and, and seeing the fall leaves. And we have so many great state parks out there. And, and I just love getting out, even not on the state parks, but even out on the routes, uh, on, on the regular roads, just, just riding around on my bike. Uh, you have lots of great trails. I've driven, I've, I've rode my bike around uh, Carbondale you have lots of great trails there on campus that I've used a bunch of times going around the little lakes and the like. Um, that's my, that's, that's what brings me joy is when I can get out on my bicycle, my little three wheeler that I, my hand crank and just, you know, uh, I'll go from town to town on these, on these little, on these little paths and, and, and see people. And um, that's, that's what makes that, that brings me peace being out in nature. Well, Senator, finally in, in your book, you talk about the concept of uh, an alive day uh, for people who have suffered through war. And, and you're, you're not too far away from your 20th Alive Day. Tell us what that concept means to you. Well, Alive Day was something that was, I believe, created um, by the Vietnam veterans. That's who I learned it from. It's the anniversary of your wounding. It's the anniversary of the, the life-changing uh, 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 wound that occurred, in my case, the day I was shot down. And it could be a day um, that I go and sit on a couch in a dark room and feel sorry for myself because it's the anniversary of losing my legs and almost dying and, and the end of my military career as I knew it. Um, or I can use it to celebrate being alive. Um, my book is called Every Day is a Gift because it, every day since that day for me has been a gift given to me by my buddies who carried me to safety. So I use the day to celebrate the men and women who saved me and to celebrate the fact that you know what? I'm still here. I'm still kicking. I ain't got no legs, but I'm still kicking, <laughs> you know? And so it was something the Vietnam vets taught me. And, and, and it's just a moment of thanks. Um, and I get that day is the one day of the year that the guys who saved my life allow me to call them and say, thank you for saving me. The rest of the year, they won't take it. They also make me buy them beers all day long. So <laughs> there is that. <laughs> Well, Senator, thank you so much for your time. It's really been delightful to talk with you. And we actually had a wonderful town hall meeting with you two years ago in Carbondale. And, you know, when circumstances allow and travel opens up, we'd love to have you back on campus. And maybe you can take a, a little a little bike ride around the lakes and, and see Carbondale again. So we'd love to we would love to have you meet with students and the community and and come back to Southern Illinois. I would love it. I would love it. I, I wore my Saluki uh, 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 jersey that I got there and, and, and rode around. I would love to come back. I just got my booster shot um, last week, so I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. Okay, great. Well, thank you again, Senator. It's been great to talk to you, and we will be in touch. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Simon Cass, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute.
Simoncast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simoncast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to see new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening, and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.